Ah, man. A chance. Perhaps they could actually obtain the spice melange. I am Mabel Gonzalez, the housekeeper. They're here for the spice. I can sense it. I wonder why everyone keeps taking really long pauses after they talk. Dune, a movie directed by David Lynch and released in 1984, is not a very good movie. It's slow, clunky, with characters constantly staring into the middle distance while their thoughts were whispered in omnipresent voiceover. The movie was based on Frank Herbert's 1965 book, Dune, a sci-fi epic that commented on everything from climatology to drugs to capitalism to eugenics to religion and more. The book was a critical and financial success, with Herbert writing five sequels to Dune before his death in 1986. It is considered to be one of the, if not the, greatest science fiction novel of all time. It is also considered to be one of the most impossible to adapt to a motion picture, despite more than a few attempts. In 2021, the latest attempt at an adaptation was released, and Canadian director Denis Villeneuve's Dune went on to garner 10 Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. While it didn't win Best Picture, Dune ended up winning six Oscars. On this episode of ARC, I'm going to go over what the Dune franchise has meant to me ever since I first became aware of it many years ago, affecting my interests in science fiction, cinema, literature, and even sex. This is ARC. God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. Make it so. Where are my dragons? No Nothing for you. Welcome to Earth. Stick around. No slices for white. Clever girl. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm 37. Are you the key master? I'm Omar. Who the hell are you? Omar! Omar coming down! Omar coming down! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. I'm your host, Omar Latiri, and thank you very much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Arc Reviews, and please consider becoming a patron of the show by visiting patreon.com slash arcreviews. Ever since I was in grade school, I'd always gravitated towards science fiction as my genre of choice. The novel that opened my mind to the possibilities that sci-fi had to offer was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel. Lengel's work weaved spirituality and science through stories about good and evil, jumping through time, space, and multiple dimensions that my young imagination could easily absorb. Enjoying Star Trek wasn't too far off, and I was all in with Star Trek after September of 1987, the start of seventh grade, when Star Trek The Next Generation premiered. Tonight, the 24th century begins. Welcome to the Enterprise. In a special world premiere movie, Star Trek The Next Generation. Ready for departure, sir. Engage. The end of The Next Generation's first season came in May of 1988, and around that time, television stations aired Dune. But not just any version of Dune. It was a two-night television event, and capitalizing on the success of Star Trek The Next Generation, promotional ads highlighted Patrick Stewart's involvement in Dune right alongside Sting. Star Trek's Patrick Stewart. This is genocide. 
the deliberate and systematic destruction of all life. The legendary planet holds the galaxy's greatest secret to you. Now, with never-before-seen footage, coming next month from Universal Pictures' debut network. When that promo came out, I vaguely remembered seeing the poster for Dune in 1984. Doing research for this episode made me remember a few things about the circumstances surrounding that memory. I know that I didn't see that movie in the theaters, but I do remember being interested in seeing it because of the poster. Looking up release schedules and seeing that Dune was released in December of 1984, I figured out that the movie that my mother and I ended up watching was Starman, starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. It then hit me that it was a choice between those two movies, since there wasn't anything else playing that wasn't rated PG. We opted for Starman because Starman's runtime was considerably shorter, thinking that we would see Dune in the following week. Of course, Dune bombed at the box office and left theaters before I had a chance to see it. Fast forward three and a half years, and I was elated to finally see this movie that I had missed. Not only that, but Patrick Stewart was in this movie. Nerd. You're a f***ing nerd. Nerd. You're a f***ing nerd. And no one likes you. No one likes you. Whatever, my 12-year-old mind was automatically geared toward liking the movie. It was sci-fi, it had Patrick Stewart, and it was an event. And for me, it did not disappoint. I was blown away by the visuals, the spectacle, the story, and the themes. The Tunisian side of me was intrigued at this portrayal of a desert culture and the sprinkling of Arabic and Arabic-sounding words. I taped the movie over the course of the two evenings it was aired, and I watched that tape many, many times that summer. It got me interested in the careers of the movie's cast to the point where my desire to see movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Lawrence of Arabia were helped in no small part to the involvement of Brad Dourif and Jose Ferrer, respectively. But most importantly, the movie made me seek out the original novel and read it. That summer, I went to the local library and checked out Dune. Or, at least I thought I did. When I first started reading it, I was immediately confused. Besides Bene Gesserit, I didn't recognize anything else. And then, when it referred to the Lady Jessica as the grandmother of the tyrant, my confusion grew even more. I knew that adapting a book into a movie would require some changes, but my experience in this area was limited. At this time, this was the largest book I had ever attempted to read, and I figured that my 12-year-old mind just wasn't ready to handle this complexity. What's going on here? I started to grow frustrated, and in desperation, I started flipping through the book to find passages that would feature something familiar that I would recognize from the movie. Nothing. Then, I looked at the copyright date. 1985. That didn't make any sense. On the Other Books by Frank Herbert page, it listed Dune as well as its sequels, including the book that I was holding in my hands, Chapter House Dune. The book I thought I was reading was in fact the sixth and last book in the series. 
I returned the book to the library, and when I found the book I was supposed to read, I decided not to borrow it out of sheer disappointment in myself. As I saw the Dune series on that library bookshelf, I couldn't help but wonder why I confused Dune with Chapter House Dune. While I decided to delay reading that series, I also was curious as to the contents of the other books. In the best example of judging a book by its cover, I was immediately intrigued by the cover of God Emperor of Dune, featuring a large sandworm with a human head on it, looking down at a small human figure standing on the sand. And when I flipped through Heretics of Dune, I stumbled upon a passage that was so sexually explicit, I felt like I was reading something from a dirty magazine. It can't be understated how that single passage informed my 12-year-old self about sex in art. Of course, I read the passage over and over, amazed that not only was it there, but that it was part of an action scene. Even without context, it was clear that sex was used as a weapon, not in a brutal or injurious way, but in a competitive demonstration of ability— I was curious about the context of that single passage, but I was too intimidated to tackle the other novels to get there, and I wouldn't try until the following summer. One season later. During the following summer of 1989, having read my fill of Star Trek The Next Generation novels, I finally decided to tackle Dune. As I started reading it, my intimidation disappeared. Yes, there was a lot that went over my head, but I was able to appreciate the story, a story that featured a main character not much older than I was at the time. I also learned three main things. First, I quickly realized that without having seen the TV movie the previous year, I would have had no idea what was going on. The TV movie starts with a 10-minute long prologue with a narrator explaining the millennia of history that led to the events of the main story. The book, on the other hand, dives right in, with no context or explanation of this universe or its different societies outside of a handy glossary in the back of the book. The large number of characters, locations, and communities were easier to understand after having seen the movie since I could put faces to the names on the page. Second, it made me appreciate the efforts required to adapt this incredible, rich, and complex story into a motion picture. I was blown away by the visuals of the TV movie, but someone had to come up with a design of the sandworms and still suits and shields just by interpreting the book. Not only that, but the TV movie was able to condense an intricate plot and shorten it into something more kinetic and exciting. It made me see how cinema could bring a story to the world and that some sacrifices needed to be made in order for that story to be told. As a matter of fact, I have another episode that looks at how one particular scene from Dune was adapted three different times. This attempt at adaptation, however flawed it may have been, inspired me to pick up the original story and experience even more joy. Third, reading the book after watching the movie spared me from an incredible amount of disappointment. I was 13 at this point, and there hadn't been that many book-to-movie adaptations that I'd seen. 
It was at this point that I learned the oft-used phrase, the book is better. That phrase is almost always spoken in a disappointing and sometimes disparaging tone because it's usually said after someone has seen the movie after reading the original book. But since I enjoyed the movie and then enjoyed the book even more, I was able to say the book is better as a simple statement of fact without the snobbery that seems to inevitably accompany bookworms. Snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty. After finishing Dune, I raced through the rest of Frank Herbert's novels. Through the course of one summer, I read Dune Messiah, followed by Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, and finally Chapter House Dune. Of those original six, God Emperor of Dune, the fourth in the series, was my favorite, because the protagonist was that large sandworm with a human head on the cover of the book. I'd never read any story with that kind of character or imagery before. Following that, the fifth and sixth books seemed boring, with the aforementioned sex scene in Heretics of Dune an erotic exception. Chapter House Dune, the last of the original six novels, ends on a cliffhanger of sorts, but author Frank Herbert passed away shortly after its publication in 1986. In the following years, I would revisit that old VHS tape of the TV extended version of Dune, and I even rented the original theatrical release, which I found to be quite disjointed. My interest in Dune waned, and it wasn't until 2000 that Dune was back in my life. In 1999, the same year that George Lucas released Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert, along with author Kevin J. Anderson, released the first prequel to the Dune saga, starting with Dune, House Atreides. To be honest, I wasn't interested in reading a prequel to the Dune saga because I cared more for a resolution to the cliffhanger left at the end of Chapter House Dune. Also, it had been 10 years since I'd read the books, and there was a lot that I didn't quite remember. But, in December of 2000, the Sci-Fi Channel released Dune, a miniseries adaptation of the first novel that aired in three parts over three nights. From the producers of Stephen King's The Stand and the Academy Award-winning cinematographer of Apocalypse Now and The Last Emperor. Think of this as the adventure of a lifetime. The movie's biggest star was William Hurt as Duke Leto Atreides, and I didn't recognize anyone else. While the miniseries was enjoyable for the most part, being very faithful to the book, the production quality was, well, what you'd expect from a sci-fi channel television miniseries. Besides the garishly awful costumes, the miniseries was shot on video, with plenty of green screen CGI backgrounds and obvious CG visual effects. It was obvious that this miniseries loved the source material to the point where it wanted to tell everything that was written. In its efforts to be faithful to the book, what resulted was that some of the heart seemed to be missing. Additionally, sound stages could not provide the sense of interplanetary scale required for such a story as Dune, 
Personally, I found myself distracted by the pronunciation of the word Harkonnen. 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 Which was different than the original movie's version, Harkonnen. Baron Harkonnen. Baron Vladimir Harkonnen! There is a Harkonnen among you. This is a Harkonnen animal! Since I didn't know until very recently that Harkonnen is the correct pronunciation, I thought that the sci-fi miniseries was making a giant mistake. I felt this weird allegiance to the 1984 movie and any deviation from it, even in the service of the accuracy of the original novel, was negative. It helped me realize that unnecessary expectations can cloud judgment and prevent one from maximizing their enjoyment of an experience. Nevertheless, the miniseries was nominated for three Emmy Awards and winning two, Outstanding Cinematography for a Miniseries or Movie and Outstanding Visual Effects for a Miniseries, Movie, or a Special. The success of the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries led to the 2003 sequel miniseries Children of Dune, which adapted and combined Frank Herbert's next two novels, Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. It starred Susan Sarandon, among others, including a young James McAvoy as Paul's son, Leto II. I will face my fear! I will let it pass through me! Susan Sarandon in an epic miniseries event. Frank Herbert's Children of Dune, Sunday, March 16th at 9, only on Sci-Fi Channel. As with the 2000 miniseries, I enjoyed 2003's Children of Dune, but probably because I was just excited that more of this saga was going to be adapted. I was also hoping that this would lead to the adaptation of my favorite book in the series, God Emperor of Dune. But despite the Children of Dune miniseries winning an Emmy for outstanding visual effects for a miniseries, movies, or a special, no plans were made to adapt future novels, even on the Sci-Fi Channel. It would be another 18 years until audiences would see another adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. But Arrakis is Arrakis. And the desert takes the weak. My desert. My Iraqis. My Dune. In the fall of 2021, after almost a year of delays, including the COVID-19 pandemic, Warner Brothers released Dune, an adaptation of the first half of Frank Herbert's original novel. Canadian director Denis Villeneuve helmed an all-star cast and shot a movie that emphasized scale to contrast the intimate story moments. Taking its cue from the novel, the story leaps right into the narrative, giving no explanation as to the lack of robots, computers, or advanced weaponry that one would expect in a science fiction story set tens of thousands of years in the future. To the uninitiated, it was no doubt extremely disorienting, so it's a testament to Villeneuve that he was able to create something so engaging and with only one half of the first book. This is only the beginning. My excitement for this movie led me to become more interested in the expanded universe that Frank Herbert's son Brian Herbert created alongside author Kevin J. Anderson. I had read the synopses of the prequel and sequel novels on Wikipedia, but like the synopses of Frank Herbert's original six, these summaries were way too brief to capture the spirit of reading the whole books. The die-hard Dune fans don't hold these books in high regard, 
but I have enough experience with toxic gatekeeping fandoms that their opinions don't carry that much influence on how much I'll enjoy something. However, it had been so long since I'd read the original Dune novels that I knew I needed to refresh my memory on what had happened. Since the last two original books, Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, were the ones I remembered the least, I decided to reread them. They were better than I remembered them. As of this recording, I am about to finish catching up with all of the Expanded Universe books. My opinion of Brian Herbert's and Kevin J. Anderson's work is not as harsh as the most vocal fans of Dune, but I can understand where the disdain comes from, even if I think it's undeserved. Frank Herbert's novels were less focused on plot and action and more about characters' thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. An entire chapter could be devoted to a tense five-minute conversation between two characters. And since Frank Herbert wrote in third-person omniscient, a chapter like that was like being in the mind of two chess players simultaneously. The expanded universe's stories are more plot-driven, written to fill the blanks and backstory of not only the characters we meet in the first Dune novel, but also the universe in which they inhabit. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Over the years, many have noted the similarities between the Dune series and the Star Wars saga. Dune fans have accused George Lucas of plagiarism, and there are definitely many similarities. Both feature desert planets, a drug known as Spice, an evil empire, and a young hero whose destiny is to overthrow it. While I couldn't find evidence of Lucas stating any influence of Dune on Star Wars, there isn't any denial either. However, even if Lucas was inspired by Dune, the similarities are superficial, in my opinion. Arrakis and Tatooine may both be desert planets, but their function in their respective stories is markedly different. Arrakis is Paul's destination, and the culture, ecology, and natural resources of Arrakis is paramount to the story. Tatooine is Luke's origin, and its lack of importance and significance in the Galactic Empire is emphasized. Both Dune and Star Wars look at the conventional hero's journey, but while Star Wars is an homage to the hero's journey, Dune is a deconstruction of the hero's journey. But, more importantly, drawing distinctions or finding similarities between two franchises inevitably leads to a determination of value and quality, leading to the invalidation of one or the other. This tribalism is, of course, a common phenomenon in fandoms. Take a look at DC and Marvel. There's no reason to have to prefer one over the other and there's plenty in both to enjoy and or criticize. For me, being able to compartmentalize similar works of art is a very useful skill. I am able to enjoy things on their own merit, which is why I can enjoy different adaptations of the same work. I can say, without a doubt, that learning this skill came directly from my experiences enjoying both the Dune TV movie and the original Dune novel. That's it for this episode of Arts Review and Commentary. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you like the show, please let me know by going to at ArcReviews on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash ArcReviews. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Arc.